Okay, so the pumpkin patch was fun, except it wasn't yeah. a patch. It wasn't it was, a patch. Um, no, it wasn't a patch. You didn't get to pick them. It was a farm, so they had pumpkins growing, I'm sure. But I got my... Oh, wait, you can't see it. It's dark. The yellow one that's really big by my plant. Mm. I got it from the first place that I sent you. Yeah. For... It was 57 cents a pound. Oh, cool. So it was $5 and something, which means it was like 11 pounds. Dang. Yeah. So, and it's heavy too. But they had pumpkins that were like as tall as my chair is that I'm sitting on. Like the height. Not this tall, but like the seat tall. Yeah. But like to your knees and as wide as the chair and I told Sheridan I was like I really want to know how much that pumpkin costs yeah I want to come home with that pumpkin how do you move that pumpkin with a wheelbarrow yes they were actually letting some people rent wheelbarrows to get them to the car (laughs) well yeah you gotta do what you gotta do drinking fat tire i was going to stop and get some wine but then i was like no i just spent money on a birthday cake for a co-worker i don't need wine i have beer <laughs> so fat tire it's not bad it's not my favorite i don't like what it beer yeah it's a it's an amber ale it's not bad. I mean, really. It tastes better than that stuff you got at the um, 90, or 20s party. It really did taste just like coffee at first, I swear. <laughs> that's what you keep telling gross. yourself. That's what you keep telling yourself. It tasted like an Americano. To be fair, I don't like Americanos. I don't either. So... But I like coffee. <laughs> I was going to say, if you don't like Americanos, why did you think you were going to like that after the first sip? (laughs) Because coffee. Sure, coffee. I don't know. Okay, let's get into it. Hello. Hello, hello. Hey, I'm Rachel. And I'm Grace. What was that? (laughs) I don't know. Head wobble. Welcome to the podcast we are myths and misfortunes or like we said last episode bitch and bitch fortunes you know how we do we're paranormal (laughs) true crime podcast why are we going over this you guys know what we are because it's episode 50 two more guys and it's been a year two more guys oh two more guys okay put the comma there (laughs) Okay, okay, where are we this week? 
Today we are in Carmel, Indiana. I'm so glad you say Carmel because I say Carmel too, and so many people say caramel. Well, this is literally Carmel. Carmel, I oh, know. Caramel. It's I know, caramel. but I feel like some people would hear Carmel and they'll be like, oh, it's caramel, Indiana. <laughs> some people say Carmel. That's true. Carmel. But Gotta I looked it up and they say it caramel, so. Yeah, it's caramel. I'm gonna say caramel. Like caramel. Like caramel. Caramel. Like caramel. 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 Kermit the Frog. <laughs> okay, sorry. Caramel, Indiana. Sorry, I just had the thought of Kermit covered apples. Ooh, so like a green caramel covered apple with like little candy eyes? No. I was thinking of <laughs> Kermit covered apple. I'd that doesn't yeah, that doesn't make sense. You're expecting my brain to make sense? Yes. Okay. So my sources for history are codelibrary.amlegal.com and carmel.in.gov. Well, fancy. IN.gov. Mm-hmm. Most of these are just like fun fact points. Because I couldn't find anything that was, like, not fun fact points other than Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. So, uh... So, Delaware, fun facts. So, fun facts. Well, Delaware, uh, or Miami Indians resided in the area until er- the early 1800s when pioneer families moved into the area, effectively pushing natives out of the area. Mm-hmm. The area was really... I keep saying area... The space in which we are telling our story. (laughs) The area was really well known for fur trading, so I think that's part of the reason why people decided to settle there. Yeah. In 1823, Hamilton County was established, and in 1832, the first settlement was in Home Place. Mm -hmm. On April 13th, 1837, John Phelps, Alexander Mills, Seth Green, Daniel Warren... Oh, and Daniel Warren, my <laughs> laid out the town of Bethlehem. I'm sorry. And Bethlehem. <laughs> well, in 1846, a post office was established, and at this time, the town residents were notified that the United States Post Service Post Office already had another Indiana town registered by the name Bethlehem. Oh. So in 1874, by a referendum vote of 33 in favor and 12 against, the town was officially incorporated and adopted the name Carmel. The population at the time was 250. Ooh, big whopping 250 people. I know. Big shooters. The first Carmel High School was built in 1887. This is when it becomes more of a fun fact section. Mm-hmm. In 1889, the Carmel Signal was the first town newspaper. In 1903, the Interurban Railway connected Carmel to Indianapolis, and electricity was first installed throughout Carmel in 1904. Oh, nice. That seems so long ago. (laughs) She did not have electricity. A hundred years. Wait, 1904. 116 years. Yeah. That's insane. Mm-hmm. 
1914, the first Carmel Public Library was dedicated. It was built with a grant from the Carnegie Corporation for a total of $11,000. Nice. It was used until 1972 when it was purchased by the town of Carmel for... Carmel? See? Carmel. Of Carmel for use as city offices and later as a courthouse. Um, a new state-of-the-art facility was opened in 1999. The Carmel... I keep saying... Why do I keep saying Carmel? Because Carmel is on your brain now, not Carmel. Ugh. The Carmel Volunteer Fire Department purchased its first fire truck in 1941. 1921. <laughs> Fast forwarding a couple <laughs> years, you know. In 1923, Leslie Haynes invented one of the country's first automatic stop and go traffic signals, and it was located on the intersection of Main Street and Rangeline Road, which I thought was really interesting. It was really interesting. In 1937, when a centennial celebration took place in Carmel, the population was 632. So it's gone up from 250 to 632. Yeah. Okay. In 1965, Keystone Avenue was opened. That same year, the areas of Woodland Springs, Cool Creek, and Keystone Square were annexed to Carmel, which doubled the population. And, like, that's 30 years difference, so I'm assuming it's a lot higher now. Mm-hmm. In November of 1974, a referendum took place as to whether Carmel, Carmel should be a fourth-class city, which basically just is whether or not it would become a city. Or not, yeah. I was about to say, what's the difference between a fourth-class and a first-class? I have no idea. Okay. No clue. No clue. That's fine. The residents fine. voted yes. So in 1975, the first city primary election was held, and in 1976, Carmel became a city. The population hmm. then was 13,500. Nice. In December 1976, the Carmel Symphony Orchestra presented its first concert. The Science and Technology Park opened at Meridian and 116th Streets in 1985. April 13th, 1987 marked the 150th anniversary of the founding of Carmel. I like this one. It's very cute. In 1999, Children's Art Gallery was named the smallest children's art gallery by Guinness World Book of Records. Aw, that is cute. Some notable places Google said to visit are the Center for the Performing Arts. There's Carmel Arts and Design District. I don't know why I'm supposed to say ice. I don't know. It's a water ice park. skating rink. <laughs> Maybe. A water park that's literally just called the Water Park. There's Lovely. a beautiful, beautiful uh, Cox Hall Gardens, which who doesn't love a good garden? And there are also theaters, parks, and wineries. Oh, love yes. them wineries. And that is Carmel, Indiana. Carmel, Indiana. Carmel. Carmel. It is Carmel. Carmel. I was trying to be pretty and sing it, and that comes to Carmel. Carmel, Indiana. Okay. Sounds about right. <laughs> so, we're going to move on to my story because I'm super excited about it. And I got yes. finished writing it in three hours. That's how excited I was about it. I did extra stuff for mine. You did. And the documentary you watched is actually what made me want to do it. That's really funny. <laughs> and I'll yeah. tell you why later. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... In case you all didn't pick up by the fact that I knew what Grace was doing, we are both doing the story of the Fox Hollow Farms. Yes. 
aka Herb Baumeister's house, aka the I seventy killer's house. Yes, supposed. Supposed I-70, I-70 which I did not know about that until you said that. Is he supposedly the I-70 killer? He is supposedly the I-70 killer. I and did you will not find know out that. At the end. Yes. It. I tried to not pay attention to as much as I could of mm-hmm. the actual case. And yeah. Just tried to focus on like everything. The after. paranormal and everything. Yeah. 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 No, I get it. I actually. Because I watched that documentary, and probably another one that you watched, um, I did not pay attention to the case. I paid attention to the paranormal. Mm -hmm. So everything that I know is purely the paranormal side. So doing this, I was like, oh my god, really? Really? What? (laughs) Anyway, my sources are murderpedia.org, which honestly, I did not use that. But just in case I accidentally did it and I don't remember using it, I just want to keep the source. Uh, Wikipedia, same thing. These next four are really my main sources. Indiestar.com, thelineup.com, talkmurderwithme.com. Okay. It's a blog. It is awesome. Okay. Um, And thoughtco.com. I never thought I would use Thoughtco so much. It's a great website. Herbert Richard Baumeister was born on April 7th, 1947. So long ago. Dang. He, <laughs> right. He was the oldest of four children born to Dr. Herbert E. and Elizabeth Baumeister of Indianapolis, Indiana. He had a pretty normal childhood and was a normal kid until he matured into a teenager. Mm. It's rough, guys. All those hormones, whew. Anyway, Herb began to just kind of obsess over the most vile, repulsive, and disgusting things. Mm. It did not go into detail, so I'm just going to let your imagination run with it. Knowing where some of it goes, I can imagine. (laughs) He developed a sick sense of humor and even apparently lost his ability to judge right from wrong. Oh, There were rumors that he once urinated all over a teacher's desk and that he put a dead crow inside of another's. I do want to mention he did not kill the crow. It was roadkill that he picked up and put in the teacher's desk. Herb was often disruptive and volatile in class. Again, we'll let your mind wander with that. Fellow children then began to separate themselves from him, not wanting any part in his morbid behaviors. This actually sounds very familiar to the story that I had with that va- uh, vampire of whatever he was. Vampire guy. Yes. Also sounds pretty similar to my vampire guy. <laughs> he had great teachers, of course, who reached out to his parents for help with his new odd behaviors. Because this isn't something that just gradually happened. It's just kind of overnight. Was like, just woke up one day was just completely different. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. His parents had also noticed the changes in their son, so they sent him for a medical evaluation. This revealed that Herb was a schizophrenic and that he suffered from multiple personality disorder. Do you call someone a schizophrenic or do you just say they're schizophrenic? Did I say a schizophrenic? Yeah. Because I typed was schizophrenic. Yeah. (laughs) That's why I was like, is that the... I don't know. I added the A. I wanted to add that extra letter just for the heck of it. Why not? I don't know. 
At the time, the most common treatment for schizophrenia was electroconvulsive. That's not right. Electroconvulsive therapy. Uh, knowing that, it makes sense why the parents might not have gone through with it. Yeah, that's extreme. It's it's extreme. It does a lot of damage, and people mm-hmm. tend to stay their entire lives in um, the hospitals when they go through with it. So understandable why they didn't. Yeah. It is also unknown if he received therapy through medications, though. Mm. He continued his public school education, maintaining his grades, but not really doing well socially. Same. Mm. His school, much like others in the country, even now, focused a lot on a lot of the extracurricular activities on sports. Yeah. You know, all football, basketball, blah, blah, blah. So, obviously, those who played sports were some of the most popular in the school. Herb was in awe at how close-knit this group of people was and tried many times to gain their acceptance, but was rejected. Mm. Um, And this was the only group he wanted into, apparently. So, I guess to him, it was either be accepted by this group or none at all. I I can see that, though. I feel like that's very common for, yeah. for like when you think about like high school especially when you like think of like movies and stuff like that you think like everybody wants to be part of like the popular crowd because they seem so like above well, it all you know but even then in movies it's like yeah I want to be part of the popular crowd but I also have this little close-knit group of friends over here he didn't have this little group of friends whether it be one or two right yeah, he was literally alone, and that is how he finished his last year of school, with no friends. Mm. And I just, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine high school without my friends. Even one, just, ugh, I feel so bad for him. Okay, uh, college... I would say I agree, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I could, look... I can imagine high school without a lot of the people I knew. There's just, like, a select few that... Oh, no, I mean, I I wish I could say that I agree, but he also, like, kills a bunch of people. Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. I feel bad for him up until that point. Uh, College really wasn't much different. He attended Indiana University in 1965, but dropped out after his first semester when he was cast out by fellow students for the same strange behavior that he exhibited in high school. He was pressured by his father to go back and did actually return briefly in 1967, but he dropped out again. This time, though, he did meet someone. Mm. A lovely lady named Juliana Sater. Sater? S-A-I-T-E-R. Sater. Sater. She was a high school journalism teacher and a part-time student at IU. The two soon began to date when they found out they had a lot in common. They were both extremely conservative, politically shared, and entrepreneurial spirit, and dreamed of owning their own business. The two then married in 1971. However, only six months into the marriage, Herb was committed to a mental institution by his father, where he stayed for two months. Wait. Say that one more time. 
That was just a lot of information really quick. <laughs> it was. Okay. After only six months into the marriage, Herb was committed to a mental institution by his father where he stayed for two months. I wasn't aware that you could, once you were married, that somebody that you weren't married to could commit you. But, you know, you're right. Back then, anybody, like, family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. But also, Juliana was like, yeah, he has some problems. He needs to go and take care of himself. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Whatever caused the Baumeisters to commit their son was not enough to break the love of Juliana for, obviously, for her husband. And she stood by him literally the entire time. Hmm. Like, go, go girl, stand by your man when she's, when he's having mental issues, you... Yes, that's very important. More people need that. Yes, I feel like that's not something you really hear about a lot. Exactly. After he was released from the institution, his father pulled a few strings and helped Herb to get a job as a copy boy at the Indianapolis Star. He would be the one to run reporter stories between desk and perform other errands. While it was a low-level job, he committed to it and was eager to start a new career. However, he obsessed over ways to try and fit in with his fellow workers, but Mm. failed. Unable to handle the rejection and the nobody status, he left that job to work at the local Bureau of Motor Vehicles. Unlike his childlike behaviors at the paper, at the BMV, he came off as bossy and aggressive towards his fellow co-workers. Seemingly, oh, right, yeah. switch there. Hmm. Real switch. Seemingly lashing out at them for no reason, as he was emulating what he thought of as a good supervisory, as good supervisory behavior. Okay, yeah, I feel like that happens a lot. It does. Like, as soon as you get that power, you're, it, like, goes straight to your head, literally. It really does. He was, again, labeled as odd. One thing, which is not really not that odd, in my opinion, he sent a Christmas card to his co-workers one year that pictured him with another man in holiday drag. So like In what year was this? This was the 70s. Okay. So very well, very weird then. Very <laughs> weird then, especially because he's happily married to a woman, yeah. not a man. I would definitely be surprised to see it. Um Yeah. Yeah, and you know I would love to receive that Christmas card. Right. But his coworkers none none laughed at it. None saw humor in at all. And, in fact, rumors began that he was a closeted homosexual. Well. If anyone knows this story. (laughs) Foreshadowing. Foreshadow. In 1984, after 10 years at the BMV, he was promoted to program director because he was recognized as a go-getter who produced results. I'm shocked. Mm. I'm really not, though. He was, however, let go within a year of his promotion for urinating on a letter addressed to the Indiana governor, Robert D. Orr. Oh. This then led to rumors that he was the one responsible for the urine found months earlier 
in his manager's desk. <gasps> oh, shit. I just don't see the appeal of that. Of peeing on something? Of peeing on something. That is pure animalistic instinct. And, like, dogs do it. Cats do it. Oh, I was going to say maybe it's like a a penis thing. I don't know. It could definitely be a penis thing. While all of this was going on, Juliana and and Herb, his name is Herb now. Herb. Well... Mm. Herby fully loaded. Yes. Juliana and Herb welcomed three children into their lives. You know, during his 10-year stint he at the BMV. Father? He was a father. Okay. Um, Marie was born in 1979. Eric, also cutest way to spell Eric, E-R-I-C-H. I've never seen it that way. In 1981 and Emily in 1984. Things seemed to be going well with Herb and his job at the BMV, so Juliana quit her job to become a full-time stay-at-home mom. However, after he was let go, he had a hard time finding steady work, and she was forced to return to work in order to support the family. Yeah. Herb was a caring and loving father to his children while he was a temporary stay-at-home dad. But being left jobless for too long, he began to explore himself a little bit. Unbeknownst to Juliana, he began drinking excessively and spending time at gay bars. Oh. There's the foreshadowing. Foreshadowing, foreshadowing, foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. (laughs) Foreshadowing. (laughs) Just breaking that wall. In September of 1985, after a drinking binge... Herb was charged with a, I was going to say, bitten run. <laughs> bitten run. <laughs> bitten run. Herb was charged with a hit and run accident while driving drunk. Don't drive drunk, kids. Please do not. Please do not. It is bad. Do not. Just don't. Just don't. <laughs> just don't. <laughs> just don't. <laughs> Six months later, he then stole a friend's car and was charged with theft and conspiracy to commit theft. However, he somehow just managed to get out of those charges. I guess he probably convinced this friend that it was a joke. Probably, yeah. That's... Finally... Yeah. Finally, Herb landed a job working at a thrift store. Love thrift stores. At first, he thought that the job was beneath him but he slowly began to see its potential as a money maker over the course of three years while he was employed there he focused on learning the business little side note during his time there his father passed away and it's unknown how this affected him psychologically oh yeah in 1988 Herb borrowed $4,000 from his mother he and his wife then proceeded to open a thrift store which they named Save a lot. Uh, no. Yep. That save a lot. Herb Herb Baumeister was the creator of Save a Lot. Why do I feel like I've heard this story now? Because <laughs> you probably have. Uh, that seems. Yeah. I, uh, I told Dad. I told Dad this, and he was like, "Really? Huh." 
The store was stocked with gently, gently used clothing, furniture, and other used items. A percentage of the store's profits went to the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis, and business boomed. The profit was so great in the first year that they opened a second store. Uh, See, within three years, that's what I love years, about like thrift shops. I feel like what? The, it's, they're so popular because like there's so many people who just like can't afford to buy new. the super expensive new stuff. Yeah, well, most of the time that looks new. Yeah, most of the time, also thrift stores um, get things donated to them, so it's pure profit. Exactly. So, and I think the fact that which a however portion... that it does bother me that thrift stores use that to like the popularity of stores to then turn around and then change their prices after yes. such a long time of yes. making so much money. And agreed. 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 Well, that's also why I think it's great that a percentage of their profit went to the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis. Yeah. Like, at the time, that that's fantastic. Which is very shocking to me that this is this man. <laughs> I know! Okay, moving on. Uh, within three years, they were rich. I just said that. After becoming extremely wealthy, the family moved to an 18-acre horse ranch, so jealous, called Fox, nice. uh, right, called Fox Hollow Farms. Uh, this was in 1991, before we were even the twinkle in our parents' eyes. It was a huge million-dollar semi-mansion that had all the bells and whistles, including a stable and an indoor pool. I need an indoor pool. Same. Goals, man. I'm so I, I'm so fair skinned. I, I get burned so easily. I need an indoor pool. Also, if we had an indoor pool, you could just swim year round. That too. I would be. I'd be so healthy. Herb had become a well-respected, successful family man who gave two charities, which is a plus in pretty much everyone's book. Unfortunately, working with your family is not always easy especially when you start a business together. Mm-hmm. From the beginning, Herb treated Juliana like an employee and Ooh. not a business partner. Ooh. He would often yell at her for no reason, which, no. No. In order to keep the peace, though, she decided to take a back seat on all business decisions. But this took a major toll on their marriage. They argued and proceeded to separate on and off over the next several years. Mm-hmm. While the Save-A-Lot stores were known to be very organized and clean, the Baumeister home was not so much. It tended to liter- literally take a back seat. The once meticulous maintained grounds were overgrown with weeds, and inside, the rooms were a mess. Well, you know, I, oh, I was going to say one thing about that property, though, is that the mm-hmm. lawn is so boring. Well, during the time, it wasn't as... Yeah, but I'm pretty sure it yeah. still looks like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Lawns are a symbol of the bourgeoisie, just to let you know. Okay. Yes, yes. Uh, the only area that Herb seemed to care about was the pool house. Mm-hmm. He kept the wet bar stocked, filled the area with extravagant decorations and mannequins. Oh. Uh-huh. 
that he then proceeded to dress and position in order to give the appearance of a lavish pool party. Oftentimes, in order to escape, Juliana and the kids would stay with Herb's mother while he stayed behind to run the stores. At least, that's what he told Juliana. Then in 1994, their 13-year-old son, Eric, was playing in a wooded area behind their home when he found a partially buried human skeleton. Mm, Here it is. He showed this to his mother, who then in turn showed it to Herb. He, of course, had an explanation. It was his father's. His father had used skeletons in his research, and after finding one while cleaning the garage, he had buried it. It was just a skeleton? It was just a skeleton. Okay. However, his father had never lived with him, and they'd only had that home for three years. But still, Juliana decided to believe him. It's that blind faith in your partner type thing. Like, blinded by love, rose-colored glasses. It. I, I'm trying to think whether or not I would believe somebody, but I guess you literally don't know unless you're in the situation, huh? Yeah, exactly. Um, so shortly after the first store had opened, you know, they got rich, blah, 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 but then the business began to lose money. Herb's drinking habit then got worse as he began drinking during the day and acting very unprofessional towards customers and employees alike. Soon the stores began to resemble his home in a constant state of disaster rather than a clean and organized business that they once were. Then at night, he would cruise the nightclubs, come home to his pool house, where he would proceed to cry for hours about his dying business. While while the couple were struggling to fix their bear, their burgeness, burgeness, while the couple was struggling to fix their business and marriage, a major murder investigation was underway in Indianapolis. Uh-oh. In June of 1994, Virgil Vandegrift of Vandegrift and Associates Incorporated was contacted by the mother of missing 28-year-old Alan Broussard. She told Vandegrift that when she had last seen her son, he was headed out to meet his partner at a popular gay bar, known as Brothers, but he never returned home after that. A week later, he received another call from a family distraught over their missing son. In July of that year, -year 32-year-old Roger Goodlett left his parents' house to go to a gay bar in downtown Indianapolis, but he never arrived there. The two men, Goodlett and Broussard, apparently had very similar lifestyles, looked alike, and were close to the same age, Hmm. and both died en route to the bar. He began distributing posters of the men and conducting interviews, and he learned that Goodlett was last seen willingly getting into a blue car with Ohio plates. Vandegrift then received a call from a gay magazine publisher who informed him that several gay men had disappeared in Indianapolis over the last few years. At this point, he was convinced that there was a serial killer out there and took his suspicions to the police. But this was low priority for them because it was possible that the men had left the area without telling their families in order to freely practice their gay lifestyles. But First of all, it sounds like the two men that were out that were out 
their parents and family seemed to accept them. And and know. And know where they were going, what they were doing. So I don't think they would just I, leave yeah. all of their shit behind. Yeah. I mean, in this... Why does it always happen like this, though? All these big cases get ignored by police for being part of a marginalized community and for being the non-cisgender male or female or or straight or or straight or or whatever why are they ignoring race and stuff right mm. why are they ignoring these Uh, especially a a potential serial killer yeah also it's their job Actually, the police do not, they are not technically required to do shit. This is true. And they take full advantage of that. Shh. Okay. Vandegrift also learned of an ongoing investigation into multiple, multiple murders of gay men in Ohio that began in 1989 and ended in the mid-90s. Apparently, bodies had been dumped along the side of Interstate 70, and were thus dubbed the I-70 murders in the media. Four of these victims were from Indianapolis. That's the tie-in. Okay. Yes. A few weeks after Vandergriff began distributing the posters, he received a call from... God, this is such a long story. He received a call from... A man. A man. <laughs> from a man who we will call Tony. Tony swears that he was certain he had spent time with the person responsible for the disappearance of the two men, particularly Goodlett. He claimed that he went to the police and the FBI, but they disregarded his story completely. What the fuck? Vandergriff, of course, begins the process of interviewing Tony, who then went on to tell Vandergriff quite the story. He said that he was at a gay bar when he saw that another man seemed overly captivated by the missing persons poster of Roger Goodlett. Mm-hmm. So being the nosy person that he is, like we all are, yeah. he continued to watch the man. It was just convinced that this guy had some sort of information about about his disappearance. Yeah. So to try to confirm his suspicions, he needed to talk to the man. He just needed to. Mm-hmm. So he introduced himself. The man said his name was Brian Smart and that he was a landscaper from Ohio. Okay. And every time Tony, Tony, Tony began to bring up Goodlett, the man became super evasive. Oh. Dude is bold. I would not. Very bold. That is terrifying as all get out. As the night wore on, the two, I guess, hit it off, and Smart invited Tony back to the house where he was temporarily staying Mm. for a nighttime swim. Apparently, he was doing some landscaping for the new owners who were conveniently away. Tony agreed, I don't know if it was stupidly or not stupidly, and got into Smart's Buick, which had Ohio plates. Tony did mention to Vandegrift that he really didn't know northern Indiana well, so he couldn't say exactly where they were. 
but he did notice horse ranches and very large homes, a split rail fence, and a sign that read farm something. Farm. Farm. (laughs) How specific. The sign was at the front of the driveway that Smart turned into, so that's farm something. Yeah. They entered a large two-door, two-door, it's a two-door, tutor style home through a side door. He claimed that the home was packed full of furniture and tons of boxes. He then followed Smart through the home to the bar and pool area, which had, guess what? Mm. Mannequins set up around the pool. Smart offered Tony a drink. Right! That would freak me out. If I went over to somebody's place and then they were like, you want to go swimming? And I was like, yeah, sure. And they were like, cool, I have this indoor pool down here. Just, just like, come on. And then I walked in and the room is full of fucking mannequins. I'm out. I'm gone. Right. My friend, um, my friend Angela, she has a mannequin. But she bought it for a film project that she was doing. And, I mean, they spent the money on it, so they're going to keep it. Right. And every time I walk into the room that that mannequin is in, I flip out for a second before I realize it's a mannequin. Because I just think it's someone standing there. (laughs) But, like, multiple mannequins. Multiple. (sighs) Okay. (sighs) Yep. Okay. Smart offered Tony a drink, to which he very... Very smartly turned down. Mm. Smart, then excused himself, and when he returned, he was more talkative. Tony believed that he may have snorted some cocaine. All right. At some point during the night, Smart brought up autoerotic asphyxiation. As you do. As you do. (laughs) And asked Tony to do it to him. Tony just went along with it. Oh. And choked Smart with a hose while he masturbated. Mm-hmm. Smart then said it was his turn. Ooh. Tony mm. just, he just went with it again. And, uh, then Smart began choking him. And when it became obvious that he wasn't going to stop, Tony pretended to pass out. And when Smart finally released the hose, Tony opened his eyes... At which point, dumbass, is of course startled because he thought that Tony was passed out and or dead. Wow. Smart then drove Tony back to Indianapolis and they agreed to meet again the following week. What did he just say? My bad? What? Uh, my- <laughs> I wish I knew the conversation of how that went down because uh- that... I can't even imagine... In order to learn more about Smart, Vandegrift arranged to have Tony and Smart followed at their next meeting. However, Smart never showed up. Smart. Vandegrift, Smart. Brian Smart. No, Brian Smart was apparently smart. smart. Yeah. 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 Smart. Huh. <laughs> uh, Vandegrift again turned to the police with this information. At this time, though, he contacted Mary Wilson, a detective who worked in missing persons, whom he deeply respected. She then drove Tony around the wealthy areas outside of Indianapolis, hoping that he might recognize the place, but he didn't. Mm. 
It wasn't until a year later that Tony ran into Smart at the same bar. Oh. He then, he was smart. He got the license plate number off of the car and gave it to to Detective Wilson. Nice. Guess who the plate was registered to? Mm. 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 Tough, Um. tough decision. Mm. Not a Brian Smart. Darn, that was my first guess. (laughs) Herbert Baumeister. Um, (gasps) Oh oh, oh, oh my gosh. Oh, my shining stars. Mm. Mm. Upon a short investigation into him, she agreed with Vandergriff that Tony had narrowly escaped becoming the victim of a serial killer. This is why you believe people. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Wilson almost immediately went to the store to confront Herb, telling him that he was a suspect in an investigation of several missing men. She asked that he let investigators search his home, and he refused. Oh. Telling her that she should go through his lawyer in the future. <laughs> in the future, um, any contact, I'd appreciate it. If you just, like, talk to my lawyer. Uh, talk to my lawyer. Don't talk to me. It's like, talk to the hand. But also, <laughs> that is a I don't talk know to the hand for rich people. That is, <laughs> that is. That is their talk to the hand. <laughs> it is. But also, I don't know about anyone else, but to me, it's super sketch whenever someone says, uh, no, you can talk to my lawyer. Like, See, well, okay. Not not always, but, like, in this particular in- instance, what are you losing by having someone search your property? Well, in this instance, for sure. However, um, I, I have this thing where I feel like um, social media makes lawyers seem like they're really bad people, when in reality... They're not. They yeah. are... They're not bad. I mean, like... You have a lawyer for a reason. They are not all slime balls. Hell, so. our family has a lawyer. Yeah. We have you have to. So in this day and age, unfortunately, you have to know someone who knows someone. I mean, it just So you gotta just saying. Okay. Just talk to the hand. However, in this case, yes, sketch. In this yes, in this case, very sketch. Um, she then went to Giuliana, telling her exactly what she told Herb, hoping to get her to agree to the search, while Juliana was shocked at what Detective Wilson told her she also refused the search. Uh, but I think this was purely just Juliana being like, my husband said no, so sorry. I don't know. If I felt like, I don't, that's a really tough situation to be it, in. Because, yeah. like, on one hand, this person that I love is being accused of something I feel like they probably didn't do. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, like, especially because they were like, men, and they were gay men, it's like, she would be doubling down on that, because like you said earlier, they were conservative. Yeah. Well, they were conserv- yeah, they were conservative public- publicly politicians. Politically, there we go. Yes. And so there's that, but on the other hand, like, it sounds like their relationship was not that great, so I probably would have been like, Yeah. That's a, that's a hard, that's hard. It's, it's, it's a hard no, bud. The next plan of action was to get a search warrant from the Hamilton County officials. However, they refused saying that there was not enough conclusive evidence to warrant it. But I... Go figure. So at this point, Detective Wilson just had to wait and try to get more evidence. Luckily for her, 
Herb seemed to suffer an emotional breakdown over the following six months, which caused Juliana to just reach her limit. The Children's Bureau canceled the contract with the store, and she was facing bankruptcy. Her loyalty to her husband was slowly dissipating. The image of the skeleton that her son had discovered more than two years ago had not left her mind since she first spoke to the detective. Yes, also that. I forgot that. She then decided to file for divorce, tell Detective Wilson about the skeleton, and agree to the search of their property. Dang. So, while all this went down... Herb and their son, Eric, were visiting his mother when Juliana called her lawyer. Mm. On June 24th, 1996, Detective Wilson and three Hamilton County officers walked into the grassy area next to the Baumeister's patio. Upon close inspection, they found that the rocks and the pebbles the children so frequently played on were in fact bone fragments. (gasps) No. Forensic testing confirmed that they were human bones. What? The the following day, excavation began. Firemen and police found bones literally everywhere. So it was like... Even oh. on the neighbor's property. Literally everywhere. Oh my god. Early searchers found roughly 5,500 <gasps> bone fragments and teeth. Oh my god. It was believed that the bones were from 11 men with only four at the time being positively identified. Goodlett was one of the victims, Stephen Hale, who was 26, Richard Hamilton, who was 20, and Manuel Resendez, who was 31. Juliana and the authorities, of course, feared for the safety of Eric, who was still in Herb's custody. Mm-hmm. They decided that the best plan of action was since the couple was going through the process of a divorce, Herb would be served with custody paperwork demanding that Eric be returned to Juliana. All of this was to be done before the discoveries at the farm were shown on the news. When the papers were served, Herb turned Eric over without a fight, figuring that this was all just Gonna legal blow maneuvering. Over. Yeah, it'll all blow over, blah, blah, blah. I'll see my son again later. However, when news of the findings on their property hit the news... Herb disappeared. On July 3rd, his body was found by hikers inside of his car at the Pinery Park in Ontario, Canada. Oh, dang. He had shot himself in the head, leaving a suicide note three pages long. Dang. He explained that the reason he took his life was that his failed business and marriage was because of his failed business and marriage. Mm-hmm. No mention of the murder victims that scattered his backyard, of course. With the help of Juliana, investigators of the murders in Ohio along I-70 were able to link Herb. She provided receipts that showed he had traveled along Interstate 70 during the times that the bodies were found. The bodies had stopped appearing there when the family finally moved to Fox Hollow Farms, where there was plenty of land to hide the evidence. That's wild. It is so wild so while the family has never actually got justice you know seeing him sentenced the killings did stop like i hate that the family's never got justice but the killings ultimately stopped whether whether he's the one who did it or not but all evidence points is pointing that way yes 
And that is the supposed I-70 murderer, strangler, Herbert Baumeister. That's crazy. Please, please, tell me yours. The reason I chose the story. <laughs> well, um, so Fox Hollow Farms, my source, my sources for this were, um, an episode, uh, season two, episode eight of Paranormal Witness, season two, episode, oh, I just said that, season nine, episode nine of Ghost Adventures, um, mm-hmm. sci-fi.com, youarecurrent.com, and, um, only part of the haunting of Fox Hollow Farm. Oh no, really? Yeah. Um, I because this movie had two stars on Amazon Prime, I was expecting it to be like a dramatization, like a badly acted but actually scripted movie at first. Yeah. Then I found out it was a documentary and for anyone who hasn't seen the documentary, um, Merlin. He's trying to get out of my room. It's okay. I have a cat who's trying to get into a fire, so. Hey, come here. So, um, basically over a six-month period, six paranormal investigation teams, including psychics, a demonologist, EVP. Oh my god, I'm just gonna let him out. Psychic, a demonologist, EVP. EVP and visual specialists investigated the farm. I didn't get Mm -hmm. too far into it because... It was basically just repeating everything I'd already researched, and I skipped through it a little bit, and the only thing that was different about the documentary was all of the, like, mediums and psychics that were going through, and (laughs) most of what I heard of it was just them, like, trying to figure out the names of the victim they think died nearby, and this was already long enough, so... Yeah... As you know, Rachel's story, you know, all that shit happened. So... Fun stuff. Yes, great stuff. In May of 2009, Rob Graves and his family moved into the Fox Hollow Farm. They wanted to move out of the city, and Fox Hollow Farm looked great at first until the realtor told them about the farm's history. Mm -hmm. Or so you'd think... Surprisingly, the family didn't mind that a serial killer had murdered and buried people all over the property. Probably yep. because the house was a steal due to its history, so they bought it. I mean, a good house is a good house. You know. Hey, as long as it's got good bones. <laughs> it's got <laughs> good bones. That's fucked up. That's a fucked up I mean, pun. structurally. <laughs> That's fucked up, Rachel. You're welcome. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. My demented, twisted mind. Wow. It didn't take long for strange things to start happening on the property. One day, the kids had tracked gravel into the house, and Vicky Graves was vacuuming it up. But the vacuum kept cutting out. Each time mm-hmm. she would start it, the vacuum would come unplugged from the extension cord. The third time it happened, she said it felt like someone was there with her. Something that... Someone was there with her? Yeah. Like, there was a feeling... And just stepping on the power cord? Yes. There was a (laughs) feeling of something that didn't want her there. Mm -hmm. Apparently, this happens to this day, and it's so common that they have to say out loud to stop unplugging the vacuum before they can actually vacuum. Look, I would say that. 
Rob Graves worked at a car dealership, and his co-worker, Joe LeBlanc, was always late to work because his commute was so long, so they offered to let him move into the apartment they had on the property. Mm-hmm. Like the family, Joe somehow wasn't phased by the property's history. We wouldn't be phased by the property's history. But his opinion was that since the apartment had been gutted and remodeled, all the bad things were gone. And as <laughs> we know, that, that often <laughs> the exact opposite is true. So That means you turn it up. <laughs> yeah. So Joe and his dog Fred moved in. And when they were done, Joe passed Fred. When they'd done, they were done moving everything in. Joe passed out on his bed, exhausted, and fell right asleep. But he had a disturbing dream that he was being chased. He didn't know by who, but he knew they were bad, and he knew that he had to get away. And when he woke up, he was so scared he physically got up to run. And when he did, he ran right into the door frame, shattering the glass panels in the door. Like there oh, were shards no. of glass everywhere and they had gotten into his hands he's okay right yes okay yeah he's in all of these like documentaries and movies and stuff too but he didn't know what he was running from better me yeah (laughs) he didn't know unless he's talking to us from the grave which hey he's talking to us from the graves (laughs) wow you got puns tonight it's worrisome uh he didn't know what he was running from but he knew he had to get out of there right away Mm mm-hmm one day, Vicky had come home from work to find Rob painting, and while she was looking through the house, something caught her eye. It was a man in okay. a red t-shirt standing in their yard. Oh, yeah, I remember this Which part. would also freak me out, but as soon as he walked away, Vicky realized she wasn't able to see his legs. <clears throat> like, there were just, it was just nothing there, and suddenly, the rest of him vanished, too. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Rob dismissed it as a serial killer groupie, even though he disappeared. They walked over to the area where she'd seen the person and found nothing. And that's when mm-hmm. she told him that wasn't the first time she'd seen the man on their property. Oh, nice. When else had she seen him? She, she said she'd when just else seen else him had before. She seen him? Oh, okay. No specifics. Right. Cool. Uh, finally concerned for what she saw, he installed security cameras. Good. They didn't catch anything. Of course not. Joe was washing his dishes in his apartment one night when he heard a knock on the door. The knocking Mm -hmm. became more insistent, and Joe opened the door and found nothing. He looked outside. No one was there. He closed and locked the door, but wasn't able to shake the feeling that something was watching him. (laughs) Something's just not right. Well, those feelings do happen, you know? They do. They really do. Crystal. But he couldn't see anything. Yes. Suddenly, uh, a wisp of something attra- gra- like grabbed his attention. He looked into the back into the bedroom and didn't see anything. But even Fred was acting like he saw something. Poor Fred. Poor Fred. <laughs> On another night, as Joe was taking Fred for a walk up and down the driveway, Joe heard something in the woods. Mm-hmm. Fred had stopped. He noticed it, too. And as they walked back, Fred took off running. And that's when Joe noticed that Fred was chasing after a man in a red shirt. So wait, red shirt and not a red hoodie? Because I always thought it was a red hoodie. Red shirt. Oh. 
The man walked into the woods and disappeared, but Fred still chased after him. Joe went into the woods following him, and he wasn't sure if the man in the red shirt was bad, but obviously he needed to find Fred, so... Mm Mm-hmm. But then... Fred comes first. Out of nowhere, he came face to face with the man in the red shirt. Oh, that's not creepy. Yeah. Yeah, not at all. And Joe promptly turned and ran with Fred following behind him. Same. Yeah. Joe told Vicky and they realized that they they thought they saw the same person. Uh, yep. On another occasion, Joe was awakened by another insistent knock at his door. He called out asking who was there, but got no answer. Mm-hmm. He said he could feel the panels on the door vibrating from the knocking. It was that strong. Oh, so like banging. Yes. Okay. Finally, Joe pulled the door open and saw no one there. Which is interesting because on the episode of Ghost Adventures, he actually said something different. He said that the door oh, really? flew open itself. So... Is it possible that it could have been like two different instances? It might be because or... there's another instance later on. Okay. She is mouthy today. She is so mouthy today. I think it's because she's sassy. I've been gone all day. Mm. In the past three days I've been off. She's been like, oh, I'm just going to stay here and cuddle you all day. Yeah. Um, Either way, when the door opened, the door knocker looked like someone was holding it almost. Like it was still. (sighs) Like still like horizontal. Yeah. Yeah. But then it raised all the way. And then slammed back down. Wham! Let me in! (laughs) Wham! He closed the door, locked it, and began to feel a bit safer. And he went back to find Fred growling. And then he he heard a sound that, like, like the doorknob turning. Mm -hmm. Like, something was messing with the doorknob, like, violently trying to open it. Finally, it stopped. But then the door banged open and wood chips flew across the apartment. There we go. Yeah. But he never That's said in was. Ghost Adventures that he opened the door at all. Mm. They could have edited it He might it out. have. And they edit, yeah. He could have been editing, yeah. They do it for time. Yeah. Joe stepped outside, and when he turned around, he saw a man in his apartment running for his life. Like, desperately, desperately trying to get away from someone. And running... In, in his apartment? Yes. And they oh were running God. towards the back of the apartment. Yeah. There's, wait, there's there's not a door back there. No. There's only a window in the kitchen area. Mmm. So okay. in the Ghost Adventures episode, they were like, were you, what were you doing back here? Were you trying to get out of the window? Like, what was going on? So. Any response? We'll, we'll get into no. it. <laughs> okay. Come on, Grace. Obviously, Joe thinks the man was one of her Baumeister's victims. Rob, Vicky, and Joe began investigating what was known of what happened on the property. As they were viewing some of the old news footage that included pictures of the victims, Joe saw the guy who who ran through his apartment. Like, he recognized oh, who him. who was it? Who was it? I don't did know. It never said. Uh, That's one of the- Man, they did a horrible job at this. Like, he, he I don't, on all of the things that I watched, it never said who it was. Maybe they mentioned it on the documentary, but I just could not watch that documentary after a certain point. I know. Man, they did a horrible job at editing if they left that out. Which sucks because I spent $1.99 on that on that documentary and I got like, I don't even know, 20 minutes into it and I was like, 
I know all this. I know all this. I know yeah. all this. Yeah. And then I skipped forward a little bit, and I was like, this isn't new. And then I skipped forward a little bit, and I was like, oh. One day, Joe was walking through the woods with Fred when he once again took off running. Joe ran after him, and when Fred stopped, something caught Joe's eye on the ground. Mm-hmm. He dug it out of the leaves, and he realized... It was a human bone. Ah, shit. He took it to Vicky and Rob, and Vicky knew right away that it was human and thought it was a femur. She also thought that he'd found it in the area where they'd seen the man in the red shirt, so they think it belongs to him. Possible. 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 Rob called the lead detective on the case to report the bone, and the bone was sent for testing, and as far as I know, it remains unidentified. A friend of Joe's named Jeremy wanted to visit the house to put to bed the rumors of it being haunted, which oh, of course. is such a friend thing to do. It's like, okay, it sure, is. it's haunted. Like, let me come find out. So they were, this was so weird to me. They were diving to retrieve dead beetles from the bottom of the pool. Diving? Diving into the pool. To retrieve. To get dead beetles. Dead beetles. Cool. That, yeah. Mm. So it was, it was him and a, a co- couple of other guys. Oh my god, Crystal. (laughs) Anyway, um, they're getting dead beetles from the bottom of the pool when Joe felt someone touch his back. He thought it might have been one of the other guys that was with him, but they were all on the other side of the pool. Oh. Yeah, and as Joe swam back to his friends, he was pulled under, and he felt fingers choking him. Ooh. Yeah. Jeremy said he watched Joe put hands like, up to his neck, completely panicked, and he'd never seen Joe like that before. And eventually it stopped, and naturally they got the fuck out of there. I would never swim in the pool again. I would never, never swim in it again. Mm, I would drain it, or have a priest come bless it. Eh. Eh. Joe is where he- Bless my pool. Holy water. Your pool is now holy water. Hey, hey, the church by my house had a literal baptismal pool. Like an Intex pool, so why not? I think my grandpa's church blessed a lake. The lake is now part of the Holy Land. Or is it a river? I don't I don't care. Anyway, back to my story. In- yes, sorry, 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 sorry. Joe was working at his computer one night when the sound of metallic scraping startled him. He got up to mm. find the knives from his butcher block in the sink and cuts in the walls. He starts thinking, maybe her Baumeister didn't strangle all of his victims. And after watching some ghost hunting shows, Joe unplugged everything that could possibly make a noise and used his cell phone for an EVP session in the kitchen. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, smart-ish. I'd be afraid. Yeah, especially with those knives in the sink. Throw them outside. (laughs) I'm not going to throw away my nice knives because we got a ghost. Oh, no, I'm not saying throw them away. Throw them outside while you're doing the EVP oh, session. okay. <laughs> um, you don't want one come flying at you. In the kitchen, Joe asked if anyone was there. And according to Joe, moments later, Fred began barking. <laughs> Joe took the recording to his computer to listen to it. And when he listened closely, the response to his question was clearly the married one. The married... The married one. The married one. Yeah. Joe looked at the known victim list, and every victim was single, and that's when it cemented itself in Joe's mind that it was Herb. I mean, if they were all single, he was the only married one. Joe, he's convinced that Herb is there, which is interesting to me, 
that they believe Herb's ghost resides there when he died in Canada. Well, but also many people believe that spirits go back to the place where they felt the most comfortable or the happiest. Happiest. Uh, uh, if, if he really enjoyed killing people... He... A lot of these events can continue to the present day. When the Ghost Adventures team investigated Fox Hollow Farm, the family told them about all the weird stuff that's happened and all the weird stuff that continues to happen, including seeing a black figure walking through the woods. Ooh, yeah. Herb? The team also spoke with Virgil Vandegrift, the private investigator. Mm-hmm. And even he says that he can't discount all of the things that have been witnessed there. <laughs> that have been wisted. Wisted. <laughs> that have been witnessed there. How, how wistful of you. <laughs> As they were setting up uh, all of their tech, one of the tech dudes, Billy, heard an unexplained loud love Billy. bang in the pool room, like, really loud. Naturally, they mm-hmm. go and check it out and don't find anything, but something... So, okay, one thing I want to say about this episode that I really liked is that they often tried to speak to the victims and offered them help or, like, offered to tell give their families a message, something mm-hmm. like that. I thought they were really respectful in that sense, which I'm not totally used to. Used to from Ghost Adventures? Used to from them, yeah. Like, usually it's like, fuck you, ghost, fight me. At one point, they were in an open area in the house asking the spirits questions, and Zack saw a white mist, so he moved toward it and continued asking questions. Later, when listening back, they heard a man saying, Help. 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 (laughs) They go back into the pool room and use a spirit box to ask questions, which I always love when they do that, because half the time it's unintelligible, but they're like, oh my god, they said, I live at 42 Wallaby Way, whatever. <laughs> so they go back in there and use the spirit box, and Aaron, they ask, like, who's here, or, like, whatever, and Aaron thinks he hears it say Dan, but when they listen back, they hear, I'm dead. They ask if the spirit- You're killing me! Oh wow, I'm so shocked. <laughs> they ask the spirit if he knows who killed him, and it says, I don't know. Aww. And they add that Ryan up to Ryan the... Smart. <laughs> they add that up to the victim potentially having been intoxicated at the time of their death. Mm-hmm. But I don't hear I don't know. It just sounded like a grunt to me. <laughs> so Maybe it was. Uh. Uh. So they asked, how many men did Herb kill in this house? And it responded, Herb did it. It sounded like either that or it said 30 to me. I don't... It's like Herb did it 30, you know? Mm. (laughs) Herb did it 30. Herb did it 30. Herb did it 30. Yeah. They asked how many bodies were still buried on the property, and when he asked that, the camera captures an orb of light disappearing into the spirit box. Oh, nice. Yes. Uh, and it's just as Zach feels a heavy weight on his chest, you know, as he does. Ooh, Quite often. As he does. They keep going mm. and asking more questions, including asking if Herb is there, but they don't get anything else from the pool house. So they decide to go out into the woods where all the bodies were found in the middle of the night. Because of course. In the, in, of course. While out in the woods, they ask how many bodies are out there if... Alan, the victim the family thinks is the man in the red shirt, um, mm-hmm. is there. The spirit box says, I'm here. I actually heard oh. fuck you, but you know, you do you. Um, <laughs> this, 
Ah, they're, they're synonymous. It's, it's really close. They asked Alan who killed him and if he can take them to his body. They ask which way to walk and it responds in the middle. So they start walking and Zach asks a few more questions and the spirit box says, found it. <laughs> found it. Which honestly freaks them what out. What did you find? And then the voice goes silent and there's only white noise and they start feeling like really sad because they're thinking like this is someone who's been murdered and they're not at rest which i'm at i imagine would be really sad you know yeah surprisingly zach sent nick not aaron this time to the part of the house that had the most negative energy the apartment Nice. nice nick asks like who's up there how they died if herb killed them if they can communicate with him etc and there's this knock like that (laughs) (laughs) and he's not moving and there's no one else in the room with him so it it didn't come from him like bumping into anything and the rest of the team are all sitting in a room with the tech guys watching what's going on and they realize the knock came from the door so they head over to where he is to make sure no one's over there so that there's no one interfering yeah they go and they hear something too but don't see anybody so they go up to meet him and he tells them that he see he saw a black figure standing in this dark walk-in closet that felt very negative. I don't like that. I don't like that either. That's why my closet is always closed. I don't like closets. I had to make sure mine was closed. <laughs> <laughs> they start asking the spirit, if that's what you want to call it, questions using the spirit box and walk mm-hmm. into the closet. Like, it's big enough for all three of them. They all, Even mine's not that big. No, <laughs> They all say they can feel some sort of, like, static charge in the air. And they ask, why are you in here? And it says, here. Another one of them says, want me to come closer? And the spirit box says either getting close or getting cold. <laughs> Just getting a little close to me. And then they stop getting responses. Oh. Yeah. So probably getting cold. Maybe, yeah. They do a thermal imaging sweep of the entire property, including the woods, and they see something moving in the woods, but it ends up just being a small animal. Yeah. They Basically, they don't get anything from doing this, and it seems to have calmed down, so they start packing up, getting ready to go, and Billy goes up upstairs to the apartment and starts packing up, but before mm-hmm. he starts packing up, he asks the spirits to manipulate his flashlight. Because some weird stuff happened to his flashlight when he was setting up. While doing this, nothing happens to the flashlight, but they do see an orb, like this orb of light, sort of weave its way around the back of the room, like up the wall, down the wall, almost, it almost looks like a reflection almost, but there's nothing that could have caused it. Yeah. And, um... Like, and he didn't have like a reflective flashlight, like one of those flashlights that are super shiny? No, no, it was just like a little, like, black... Tiny, a little plastic thin, one. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, the, the light was, like, right back where Joe saw that guy running to and where mm-hmm. the knife marks were. Uh-huh. So they, th- and because there was that weird stuff that happened to him, they think that was that guy trying to get out of the window. Oh, so the, the little squiggly orb yeah. was the guy trying to get out? Yeah. That's sad. Yeah. Poor guy. Um, also, fun fact, a psychic once told Rob that one of their bathrooms is a portal for spirits to come through. Uh, I didn't really have a good place to put that, so I just thought I'd put it close to the end. 
where are you going, honey? Oh, you know, the just the portal. <laughs> it's like that. Oh, that movie um, that you that you I told sent me to watch you. the the selling. <laughs> the, yeah, the selling. Okay, guys. Oh my god, this way movie off was topic. fucking hilarious. It is called the selling, and basically, this guy has to sell a haunted house that his friend stupidly convinced him to buy and fix up. Yeah. But what they don't know is that the house is fucking haunted because there was a serial killer who owned the house. Like, just, just please, in, just go, go watch the trailer. It's free on Prime if you have Prime. It's so funny. Go watch it. <laughs> so, while this place could be haunted and there may have been, like, so many sightings and investigations... I do want to point out that the family takes every single opportunity they can to be in any movie or show that they can. And they really used it to make money. Like, there are five annual trips to the property that sell out months in advance every year. And the tickets Mm -hmm. are 90 bucks each. Oh. Yeah, so... Like, they could have talked it all up so they could eventually make money from it, or it's just really haunted and they're taking, you know, that opportunity. Yeah. But I just... So, you know, it could be really haunted. There's some a lot... Like, a lot of bad shit that happened there. And play... And hauntings tend to follow tragedies and stuff like that. So it's entirely possible. Yeah, so, like, places where there have been large tragedies, like, you know, we have Waverly Mm -hmm. and... A lot of deaths from tuberculosis. Right. So, I mean, definitely could be haunted, and I definitely don't want to go. No. Especially number no, 90 absolutely bucks. Absolutely The fuck? Oof. I'm good. <laughs> we will go to Halloween Town for 90 bucks. Oh, I would love to. I would love absolutely. that. <laughs> that is uh, my... Don't worry, my half of the story. <laughs> that was Fox Hollow Farms, guys. Yes. Thanks so much for listening. Yes. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Myths and Misfortunes. Or Twitter at Myths Misfortune. Or you can search for us using our full name, Myths and Misfortunes. We do pop up. You can also send us an email to mythsandmisfortunes at gmail.com. Also, please check out our website, mythsandmisfortunes.com. You do not have to type in www. Just want to point that out. It's literally just mythsandmisfortunes.com. Okay. Our theme <laughs> music was composed by McKean Fulbright, and our art was created by Heather Marie Adkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. And please, once again, we are back to employ you. <laughs> we are back to employ you rate review subscribe and thanks so much for listening guys yes yes goodbye bye